Special message to fans of Arduin. Dave Hargrave, October 1978. These three volumes are in themselves a complete and playable game system. They represent four years of hard work, many tears and hundreds of newfound friends. The dreams and hopes of my life are poured into these pages, as well as the lifeblood of my soul. This trilogy represents, for me, my mountain, my insurmountable goal. Well, I have climbed my mountain, and I have seen the joyous vistas of new lands ahead. So journey with me as I design new games, some of which I have been researching and playtesting for nearly two years now, and go forward to new things, new times, and new worlds. Together, we will travel on. I love all of you who have known me, either in person or through my work. I will never forget you, all these years of my life. You have been the best. Hello, Rescuers! My name is Che Webster, and this is Roleplay Rescue, the podcast about helping lost roleplayers find a route back to the gaming table. Today's episode is the last of Series 2. It began as a question posted on the MeWe group entitled The Arduin Grimoire by Dave Hargrave. John Salway asked if Arduin was being talked about on any podcast other than on Save or Die. I posted that I'd like to do one, but that it wasn't planned for a while. A couple of days later, in a moment of rare clarity, I posted an open request. Quote, Would anyone like to come on my podcast, Roleplay Rescue, as a guest and talk about Arduin in an interview? I feel like some shared passion might be the way. End quote. From this, step forward today's guest. We arranged to chat online, but on the night, the technology let us down. After some tinkering and typing, we agreed to hop onto the Anchor app and record the interview using our phones. The quality is okay, but there are frequent intermittent line drops, which, frankly, we'll just have to put up with. The conversation is a good one, and far too rich not to share. So, without any further ado, here's my interview on Arduin. This is Season 2, Episode 10. Gabriel Rock is a Californian, married and the father of one, an archaeologist focused on California Indians and the historic archaeological sites across the state. He has been a gamer since 1983, beginning with the Lone Wolf series, Mints as a Red Box D&D. Like many, Gabriel had a gaming hiatus in the early 2000s, owing to graduate school, having a young kid and full-time employment. Gaming picked up again around eight years ago when Gabriel taught his daughter to play D&D. He has been running an arduing campaign for nearly two years, and he considers himself a Hargrave enthusiast. He's even been known to publish a zine called Bugbears and Ballyhoo through the Alarums and Excursions APA. Welcome to the show, Gabriel. Hey, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> hey. So um, I always like to hit everybody with the, the first question, which is, which do you prefer, uh, GM or player? Oh, I prefer the referee. Okay. Any particular reason? Uh, yeah, I started when, when I learned how to play D&D using the Mensa red box, the red box, it's, um, yeah, I, I learned it on my own. And then, uh, when I started making up my own kit bashed version, cause I didn't own any books, um, back in my home neighborhood, um, among the kids who would come and play, I was, I was the oldest. So I was the only one 
willing and who seemed to have the know-how, even though really everyone there had the know-how, they just didn't know it. Uh, and I, I didn't know how to express that to them at the time. I was only nine years old. Um, so it, it's just, it's a role I fell into. I love to write. I like to create. Um, and it's fun also to kick back and watch what the players do with your create when they interact primarily among themselves. Yeah. Cool. So really, it's kind of you. You started off doing that, and you kind of kept doing that by the sounds of it. Yep. Okay, that's exactly right. And you said that you like to write. Is that what you kind of most enjoy about role playing games? No, I really enjoy the the interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, I I like planting seeds, you know, a uh, setting, and then watching players figure it out um so often um uh, they they take things in a completely different direction than uh, than i intended um and uh (laughs) yeah and some of the greatest moments happen um i i tend to play uh a very old school style uh of when when we dungeon crawl um I, i tend to fall back to original D&D 1974 rules. Wow. And so you've got things like, you know, just the simplest things in a dungeon uh, can be tough, like getting doors open, you know, um, <laughs> and doors shutting on you behind you on a, on a random roll. And uh, one of my favorite quotes from the Arduin campaign is, uh, you know, people saying, you know, our, our, our greatest enemy in this damn dungeon are the doors they keep close? Why do they keep closing? <laughs> None of my players um, started with uh, you know with old edition games, and uh, I think by the time you hit maybe even second edition AD and D, you're out of that. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I'm going to shut up about that because you know event, you know we will be talking about arguing. <laughs> Don't want to take away from that. No, no, no problem. I mean, one of my one of my questions is really is just to ask about the rules that you're using to play Arduin. It sounds like you really are doing uh, the thing David Hargrave wrote, really, which is 1974 plus. I'm guessing you're using his his first little booklets. I am. Um, we are now using uh, Arduin Grimoire volumes one through five, one through six and eight. Yeah. Um, so my collection's grown a bit. We started with uh, just having the trilogy when Emperor's Choice uh, made that available yep. via PDF um, on a drive-through RPG. Uh, so yeah, we started with that, and for those aspects of uh, <clears throat> excuse me, game mechanics that uh, volumes one through three, which comprise the trilogy, yeah. Uh, what those didn't seem to cover things like dex, you know, dexterity modifiers. I just used, uh, actually used the AD and D stats because, uh, rather quickly, um, Hargrave was already to be using, uh, uh, OD and D plus the Greyhawk supplement. Yeah. Um, I think that came out in 75 or 76, yeah. uh, Arduino Grimoire 1 came out in uh, 77, so he already had access to that. And the AD&D stats uh, or ability modifiers 
um, are essentially uh, Greyhawk plus a little bit more yeah. and uh, scale really well with the, the implied power scale in Hargrave's work. Yeah, so if, I guess for our listeners, I mean, we need to sort of fill them in on the history. Um, so 1974, we get D&D. And um, if I'm correct, I think, um, you know, it seems like Hargrave got involved very early on and started writing in Alarum's Excursions. Um, I think he picks up around about issue, is this one like 23 or something? Um, 23 is right, yeah. yeah. And then, I mean, I've been like reading through the first 100 issues recently, so it's kind of sort of fresh. Uh, <laughs> I've been doing my own historical dig. Um, and um, yeah, and then he's, he's obviously pulling his material together and playtesting, and eventually, I think it's 77, he said, he publishes his first grimoire, and he goes on eventually. There's nine in total. Am I right? I'm sorry. Nine of them. He in goes total. on. There are nine of them in total. That's yeah. right. Um, there are the uh, Arduin Grimoire. Uh, that's volume one. Volume two is Welcome to Skull yeah. Tower. Uh, that was originally published 1978. Uh, the third is The Runes of Doom. Doom, excuse me. Um, also 1978, according to the copy that I have. Um, the fourth is The Lost Grimoire. Uh, that's 1984. Uh, and this is where we first see a different publisher uh, pick it up rather than uh, the self-published affairs that the first three Grimoire were. Uh, so that would be Dragon Tree Press that picked up The Lost Grimoire. Uh, and the, the names of these, you know, are, are just terrific, you know, um, <laughs> evocative. Each one. So, you know, the fifth picks up with dark dreams. Yeah. Uh, the sixth, so the rising sun, you can see a little uh, hippie influence on that one uh, <laughs> song by the, um, volume seven Shadowlands. uh, volume eight, the one I most recently acquired the winds of chance. Yeah. And then posthumously you have end war. Yeah. Now I've I've got the um the republished first three and the and then the others individual pamphlets, all published by Emperor Choice Games, which um, you know, so the first three grimoires are reorganized in that big tome. Um and I'm guessing that's the PDF you're referring to, is that right? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Super handy. Okay, so like for me, I mean I discovered um I think it was about 2006, maybe 2005, 2006, I discovered David Hargrave stuff. It was really through Emperor's Choice with the Arduin Eternal. And then I realized that there was this whole kind of back catalog of stuff um, and when discovered that. Um, so, I mean, first question, I guess, is like, how did you come across him? I mean, does it go back to the when you were first playing? No, uh, no fairly early on, but uh, probably about seven, eight years later when I was in my teens. Uh, I'm in Sacramento, California, which is only about an hour from the East Bay where David Hargrave was living and publishing all this stuff, organizing convention. And yeah. so um, every once in a while, you would you know, see uh, a grimoire on uh, gaming bookshelves. Personally, I don't remember seeing them because I was fully under TSR's spell at the time. <laughs> and uh, you know, I loved those, you know, the, the big player's handbook, 
you know, uh, Dave Tramp uh, artwork and all that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, the other folks I was playing Ages and Dragons with, um, uh, you know, some of the older players in particular would talk about the Arduin Grimoire. And it was usually in these, these sort of hushed, reverent, undertones of right. you know have you ever seen the grimoire and you know blah 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 <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> i was fascinated um but my my attention span was also uh fairly short at the time as were yeah. funds and i would you know there was just something that i would forget about uh when i went to junior college uh you know uh, two-year college here um there were still AD&D players talking about the grimoire and usually, you know, Shardra, the castrator would come up, <laughs> you know, and, you know, the topless back cover art of the original and all that yeah. stuff. Um, it, funny thing is it, it, people talking about that, you know, those aspects of the publications as if it were uh, something new uh, and maybe it was in, in as much as, you know, he put it on the cover, if, if the back yeah. cover, um, that's no different than, you know, the, the, the topless pick of the uh, Amazon in uh, I think men and magic or um, one of the other original three volumes of OD and D, but, uh, but putting on the cover, that was, that was a gutsy move. Yeah. Uh, so I, I heard about it um, a lot then had zero playing experience with it. Then fast forward ugh, 20 years or some such um, when I started getting back into gaming again, um, I was, uh, you know, frequenting a lot of uh, old school Renaissance websites, you know, OSR um, websites, mm. um, discovered drive through RPG uh, the retro clones of various old editions of D&D before Wizards of the Coast started making their originals available yeah. as PDFs again. And then it just dawned on me. I'm like, holy smokes. People are republishing the old games. Yeah. Uh, I, I might be able to find stuff that I meant to get round to when I was a kid. You know, just never yeah. did. So that's that's when I just started playing for Arduin. And um, there's a you know, uh, large enough uh, fan base that uh, plus Emperor's Choice picking up the intellectual property that, that there was a surprising corpus of legally available, um, uh, you know, PDFs for a while yeah. anyway. Uh, I don't know if you know this, Jay, but uh, um, Emperor's Choice has pulled all but one title from their uh, drive through RPG mm-hmm. store. Yeah, I I heard that. Only thing that's up. yeah, that's it's it's really quite a bummer. Um, uh, that you know, but I, I don't know how much they have to pay to maintain a presence there. Uh, seems strange to maintain a presence of one item, but you know, I don't know what the economics are behind that. Um, this wish the guys well and hope they can do something with the IP. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that I'm hoping is that uh, by having these kind of conversations and putting them out there, you know, we can, um, well, at least keep the interest alive, you know? Uh, David, yeah. David's work for me um, is something special, you know, and it's new in my life. It's been about, what, 10, 12, well, yeah, about 10, 12 years, something like that, but he's had a big influence on me, 
Um, but hey, enough about me. Why? So you know, why arguing? <laughs> why is that setting your choice? Well, uh, there's a, there's some reasons. Uh, you know, some are nostalgic, uh, as I've already hinted. Yeah. Uh, you know, never got around to it, and it just seemed like you know, kind of like Warlock, um, which is a, uh, a CSU Long Beach or Caltech, uh, Caltech D and D variant. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's for 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 me and and my mates here. It's a it's a homegrown. Um, you know, D and D variant uh, that eventually turned into its own, you know, sy- a system in its own right. Um, and uh, so, from that standpoint, it just seemed like, gosh, you know, we're right here. We're practically in the epicenter of the Arduinian multiverse. You know, <laughs> let, let's experience it. Let's, you know, let's see what it's got. Uh, also, um, he Hargrave populated his world, his game, with uh, with races that I hadn't heard of, and in some ways they were prescient to races that were later used in some of TSR's works, yeah. uh, like Tecree or something like that. I forget. Mm-hmm. You know, there's sort of a mantisoid ant type bipedal creature. Well, that was the Frank from. Uh, from Hargreaves' work. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he borrowed it from some old uh, pulp sci-fi thing, but yeah. uh, like he did with the, the Deodons, you know, the, the so-called undead elves, which yeah. were originally Deodons and I think uh, Jack Vance work. Um, but uh, yeah, so th- there's, there's a lot in this that in, in his world that I had not heard of. Um, uh what else i also like the idea of running a campaign that most of my players a campaign world that most of my players would be wholly unfamiliar with all the basic gaming track trappings would be similar uh you know it's recognizably D, so they can just get right in there and play without having to learn an entirely new system yeah but you know, they also couldn't metagame it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and that was one of the things that was most attractive to me at the same time. Um, you know, uh, Hargrave's uh, world of costs, uh, that's K H A A S, uh, you know, which is the ultimate world setting uh, in which Arduin is a small kingdom. Um, you know, uh, Arduin was uh, the, well, it was a nexus point. Um, there are all these, interdimensional and uh, temporal gates um, that uh, appear on the plateau of forever and admit travel to all kinds of other planes uh, as well as ingress uh, from those other planes and times to Arduin. Yeah. Uh, so so it's a, in that respect, it's a very permissive setting. Of course, any referee should feel free to do what they will with their world and their game. Um, but sometimes it's very freeing to have that, um, uh, ar- you know, that already baked into the setting. And, yeah. uh, and what that allows you to do, of course, is mix and max match all sorts of tech levels, all sorts of societies. And it, well, I think among referees, a certain amount of permissiveness when it comes to what, that players want to play in their game. 
you know, uh, running two Arduin campaigns right now. One of them is very new. We were supposed to have our second session last night, but uh, two of the kids were sick uh, and they live in the place we were going to play. So we decided to call it off. Uh, Yeah. So it's a, it's a very fresh campaign, only one session old, whereas the other one's about two years old almost. And, um, oh, yeah, see, if you let me ramble long enough, I'll lose my train of thought. Uh, but um, <laughs> uh, player character types, that's what I was getting at. Um, so it's, it's a good setting. Um, this is really a, kind of a pitch for your listeners. It's a, it's a great system and setting for um, those of you who maybe want to play um, an old school style D&D game, but maybe you come from a new school background, say like three point, D&D 3.5 on up, uh, or maybe that's where your player's sweet spot is. So they've got all these funny notions about uh race types and what have you uh the younger uh, players in both my campaign about half of them wanted to play tieflings or even <laughs> half elf half tiefling you know <laughs> just yeah. making crazy stuff up and under a lot of other systems that have very you know very tight rules i'm looking at you dnd 3.5 um you know, where there's nesting connected rules for everything. Mm. You know, it could be, I would be very, very reluctant to allow off the wall stuff that wasn't written in already to, to the game um, with arguments. I'm just like, sure. Okay. You want to play that? All right. Uh, what can they do? What do you think a tiefling does? And they'll rattle off what they think it does. Sometimes they just like the way it sounds. <laughs> and we don't yeah. even really worry much about the mechanics. Um, and uh, you see, we also have a, a hatchling dragon in, in the group. Yeah. A couple people born. Um, sadly, to me, uh, most people aren't picking uh, strictly Arduinian uh, sort of races like Deodants, uh, Freints. Uh, Hogarim, although I don't blame them for not wanting to play at Hogarim because uh, they're basically Neanderthals, <laughs> but not too bright. Um, but uh, yeah, so and I, I think the reason that people aren't picking those sorts of races is, um, you know, they don't have any information about them. And at the time that I started the um, uh, original, uh, my original Arduin campaign, um, I didn't have much information about them either. And so it just, I guess it, uh, because of that, um, they felt like they might be putting themselves at disadvantage or uh, wouldn't know how to role play the character. So um, yeah. now I have that information, but you know, people have their characters. So we'll just mm-hmm. go forward and uh, should they, have a TPK. I'm looking at you, Che. <laughs> um, <laughs> I read that. Uh, then um, um, yeah. <laughs> now they might, uh, yeah, they might change their mind uh, if they have to make new characters and try something different. Take a troll to lunch, as Dave liked to say. Yeah, my favorite line from him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, 
you know, if you're playing 1974, and obviously what Dave was doing originally was um, modifying those rules, and he was publishing, you know, his his grimoires are a published kind of set of options and ideas and, you know, bolt-ons and some rules changes and stuff like that. Um, did you find it easy to, like, blend the two together? Because, I mean, what I find is if I look at the, the grimoires, I don't have, like, a complete set of rules. I have to go to the 74 thing and then kind of, you know, apply the bolt-ons. Uh, how did you find that? I, I find that simple to do. Uh, but again, I've been refereeing since, uh, you know, <laughs> in one form or another since 1983. I'm, I'm yeah. sure you have as well, uh, you know, for some time. Um, and I think you might have but maybe I'm confusing you with somebody else. Um, and... Um, uh, you know, I, I played with my daughter, uh, a solo campaign for, um, eh, we probably did that pretty continuously for three or four years. Uh, so from the time she was nine years old um, till she got basically into high school. Um, so we were using 3.5 rules at the time. And um I don't know. After D- um, the idea of bolting on uh, rules to an, to an older and very simple version of D and D, you know, didn't doesn't start. Um, you know, the the D twenty based alternate combat system that was included, such as such as it was detailed in uh, <laughs> uh, D men and magic um i mean it's 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 a sen- it's it's a little altered you know even in, in d5 um uh, at least at the, at the at the core um yeah. and you know every everything that's been published since in the D line out is an outgrowth uh alternate combat system mm-hmm. and uh you know, yeah, everything from there is just a matter of, you know, sort of which modifiers. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really find it a problem. I think a, uh, sort of a, a neophyte referee, uh, it, it could be a big problem uh, going with the uh, grimoires alone. Uh, mm. but, but if they have any, the, the particular, well, no, no, you know, all the way up, you know, because I don't think went and wrote up, for instance, um, in the grimoires, you know, what does dexterity do for you at 15? What does it do for you at score of 16, etc.? cetera? Mm. Uh, charisma, uh, maybe it was unimportant in his game, but uh, charisma and who that would be welcome to skull tower volume two um gives modifiers for a variety of things none of which include uh the reaction mm. adjustment uh in conversations uh, nor does it put a cap um on the number of henchmen uh that your character can have but rather than a he didn't you know worry about that in his game um but, uh, you know, he had his charisma bonuses have uh, bonuses for things like uh, successfully lying uh, for um, 
a morale bonus for your for your hirelings and henchmen. So that you know that's very useful. Um, it differs somewhat from AD and D first edition. Uh, I think it tends to be about five percent lower um, than the bonuses and penalties you get from uh, AD and D first edition. Uh, mm. And too, you know, for those characters uh, seeking those opportunities, <laughs> um, you know, a high charisma character gets a bonus to, um, I, I suppose, maintaining a or developing and maintaining a successful romantic relationship. <laughs> so, uh, but but nothing for reaction. Um, so either that, that. Um, so, yeah, if you were to pick up um, the first three grimoires by themselves and had limited background refereeing, um, you know, a person might feel daunted by that. Side, shoot, it might be it might be really freeing. You know, when my uh, my first D and D campaign, I, I called uh, Days in the Dark Realm. This is again mm-hmm. back. I was like nine years old. I literally owned no rule books of my own. Nothing. Mm. I had played the red ball cover both books at my buddy's house uh, during a sleepover. Um, and then I just thought this is what I want to do. This, this, this is my <laughs> hobby. This is awesome. And, yeah. uh, and, you know, back to the kids in my neighborhood and, um, I just used what I, what I remembered from the books and um, sort of a uh, sort of a ever lone wolf stats. Uh, what I remembered from that as D six, I didn't have dice, and uh, for I just used uh, an old tier uh, that my grandmother had given. Me. Uh, mm-hmm. I think just a U.S. roadmap kind of deal the names on on the paper you know and they were just other kind I drew you know, I drew my dungeons on graph paper um, and you know it it just went on for for years that way with uh, each of us slowly buying d d books uh, at random you know I think the first one I bought was 80 uh, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we didn't, I mean, of course we were kids, but you know, we didn't we didn't any of that. And if we had a question about how something would go and had no clue, you know, we were kids, so we had limited, um, you know, real life experience. Mm. Doubt we just rolled a die. It's like if if you know, we kind of you know would do almost like a matrix game, a semi structured uh argument they're like well i think my character could do this because so you know i think he's a pretty good jumper you know and and if i felt as a referee that that was due to dumb luck you know i might just give him a 50 50 chance if if i thought uh, yeah okay that makes a certain amount of sense he wants to be the jumping guy he wants to be the athletic one of the bunch okay, sure, let's give them four or five out of six, you know. Yeah, and uh, there's nothing stopping us as grown-ups from, from doing the same or uh, as 
of uh, players and their referee uh, essentially having a sort of you know, matrix game discussion, you know, argument, counter argument, rebuttal, and then decision. People maybe don't need to sweat so much about rules. Yeah, I, I think that's something that David, reading Dave's work, kind of taught me. That's the thing that was the big um, eye opener when I started discovering it in 2006 was this kind of freewheeling and sort of loose uh, uh, style. Um, and that's what drew me back to going right back, like I said earlier, to, to reading Alarms and Excursions, you know, um, and going back and discovering how this game was originally played. Because there are so many myths around it. You know, there's, you have this kind of idea that maybe uh, everybody in the hobby kind of had this really clear, eye, crystal clear idea of how this game gets played. And that's a total myth. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's great hearing what you're saying because, you know, it's that whole, you know, wing it a bit, guys. Chill out. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and suffice to say that I agree with you. Um, in case I get dropped again, I'm, I'm not going to go into my arguments other than to say that there are a couple different reasons why um, people got away from the freewheeling mode. Um, you know, you have the weight of publication becoming canon. It's written in the book. That's how you have to do it. Um, part, part of its response against capricious uh, or inexperienced, inconsistent referees, um, you know, consistent rulings and rules uh, are useful people if you if you rule consistently um, then at least you know occurs as a referee as a player it doesn't break verisimilitude for you it's like okay yeah. that I understand why my referee said that you know yeah so, so yeah definitely freewheeling um, another characteristic of the um, of Hargraves arguing is it's very high powered as written. Uh, you know, we're talking 25, 50 hit die monsters. Uh, we're talking spell levels up to order of power or level 50. Um, yeah, this is some ridiculously powered stuff. Yeah, and this really bothered. Uh, quite a fumers in alarms and excursions. Uh, you know, you might have run across some of that in your reading, Jay, mm -hmm. but uh, particularly outside of California, um, <laughs> uh, Dave's high-level style or high entropy, is, as they called it then, uh, really stuck in some people's craw. Um, and, uh, you know, um, Dave was interesting. Um you know, he could be very defensive of uh, his work and his way of doing things, but he was, a, he struck me as a pretty fair-minded individual as well. Mm. He was getting the boatloads of criticism as well as accolades for his high entropy style of refereeing and playing. Mm. And then after hearing these low entropy sort of uh, chivalry and sorcery rune quest types, um, he was like, okay, well, you know what? we've argued enough in theory about the virtues of our respective styles of refereeing and playing. 
Um, and I'm not content with that anymore. I'm not content with sitting on my side of the fence and saying high entropy is great and this is why. You say low entropy is great. That's fine for you. It's like, I'm going to start a second campaign and run it low entropy style. Yeah. Uh, and I think it was around issue 63 of Alarms and Excursions that he formally announced that he was doing that and, and would be supplying play reports. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you know, he took criticism um, to heart, but uh, frequently in a good way. Yeah. But yeah, if you use arguing sort of as as written as presented, um, it you're going to have powerful creatures, magic items, spells in play before long. Yeah, I I, I was always fascinated as well because when you start in arguing, it strikes me that you know you're kind of it's brutal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, first first five levels i mean i don't know how anyone made it to 50th level you know it's, it it struck me as brutal it, it is it is pretty brutal um you know my my players in my uh older arguing campaign i think were a little bit sheltered from some of that in as much as um uh i had a PDF copy um, of Stonehill Mega Dungeon that I had bought in a humble bundle um, and the chance to use it. Um, yeah, I kind of wanted. I just picked a place in the world that made sense to me and plopped Stonehill in there as one of the things that they could go and do. And yeah, Stonehill, for, for those of you that don't know, is written for a um a basic expert um clone called labyrinth it's a different power scale it's not nearly as brutal as um as hargrave's dungeons um so they've had a little bit of an easier time i think because of that um but yeah i would agree with you um if you played uh say overland um Overland traveling is extremely hazardous. Um, written rules. Uh, he would have a referee rolling every hour for encounters. <laughs> every <laughs> stinking hour. Yeah. Of course, that was only in truly wild places. Uh, in, the, in the same text where he talks about rolling hours, um, you know, he meant now, if you're in a civilized area or an area very well known to your characters, these chances should be considerably reduced uh, sometimes to a mere 10% chance of an encounter and likely as not, that would be with, uh, you know, uh, a patrol from the nearest city or, or things mm -hmm. of that going to be threatening unless you're really murder, murder hoboing it up. So, yeah. um, yeah, so there, there was, there was some balance there, but boy, once you got off where you could be in a heap of trouble, if you weren't prepared, you could be in a heap of trouble if you are prepared. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, we're, we're doing a podcast to people who are thinking about coming back to the hobby or coming back to the hobby. Um, I also have listeners who are, you know, full on OSR kind of, you know, aficionados, but many of them, 
no idea about Har- you know Hargrave or very little knowledge of arguing. You know, yeah. I mean, what what would you say? Why would you recommend they take a good look at it? Well, I would recommend it because it's um, it's clearly geared for um, you know kit bashing your own campaign together. If you keep in mind that um, the books are a resource, not roadmap, you're going to find all kinds of terrific um, modular pieces that you can pull out and use, and yeah. you know much much of it you can also elect to ignore and. Unlike some systems, um, the you're not gonna you're not gonna hurt your gameplay uh, or hurt the setting if you leave some of it alone. Yeah. Um, or I really don't like constitution-based hit points. Um, I just want people to roll every level. You could completely do that, and it's not gonna throw off the balance of the game. Um, it's also a heck of a lot of fun. I mean, you, you have off the wall, you have off on steroids. Um, it's D and D from a very fevered, um, and pretty un, uh, you know, uh, unhindered, unimpeded imagination. Um, and if you want it, there's plenty of world richness to be had. Um, yeah, you know, sometimes it's just religious cults or you know secret societies in Arduin. Uh, in Arduin, I'll point out as a small place, it's only about maybe well <laughs> small by by American standards. It's probably about the size of say the Czech Republic. Um, yeah. California is bigger than Arduin. <laughs> um, <laughs> probably three times as big. Um, but there's a heck of a lot of stuff in there, a heck of a lot of history. Um, none of it is, is requisite for running a game in arguing. You, you, you don't need any of that stuff. Only evocatively placed, you know, uh, a table of secret societies, for instance, the referee is given no additional details. I think that's out of uh, the third volume, Runes of Doom. Uh, you know, no other details. Yeah. That's, that's, we can opt to use those. The referee can opt to flesh that out. The referee can opt to ignore it. Um, if you want rules and don't want to have to invent them for yourselves for integrating high tech into your fantasy, you know, the, the grimoires have it in there. It's already figured out. Um, it's not a separate supplement to larger work. You know, it's, yeah. it's, baked the, it's baked into the setting and you've got rules in there that are going to work in scale of arguing. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of advantages and um, you know, if, if you're sometimes beleaguered by, uh, canon quotations from your players, uh, arguing's going to be a, a great boon to you because it's going, you know, chances are uh, it's going to look standard surface. Um, the mechanics 
are going to be um, very similar. In fact, you can pretty much bolt it on to almost any D20 type system you can imagine, or it probably would work fine for a 2D6. It would certainly work fine for percentile. Um, and uh, you can just plug in the elements you want. Uh, you are not going to be hindered by player, likely is not, you're not going to be hindered by, um, you know, uh, by advanced player knowledge of, of the setting. It's probably going to be new to them. Yeah. So someone wants to discover this. I mean, what's your advice? How, uh, how? <laughs> I'm sorry, what? How to discover it? What, what would you say? How to discover it, how to get your hands yeah. on it. Yeah. Oh, you know, that was the only thing um, <laughs> that, that gave me a little bit of pause about, um, you know, uh, talking about arguing on, a, sh on a, a podcast that's trying to, you know, a bunch of this stuff just got pulled <laughs> from, <laughs> from, the, from the, you know, simplest legal way to obtain, you know, the materials. Mm. Uh, that said, people are on the secondhand market are selling copies of the grimoires left and right. Um, usually one is looking at paying, uh, if someone knows what they're doing, you know, maybe overcharging a tiny bit, they're probably going to be charging you 30 to 40 bucks, bucks uh, US uh, per volume um and that that's that's kind of a steep price tag um a buddy of mine uh kindly picked up for me um a later version of arguing that we haven't talked about yet uh not arguing eternal but the the one in between the complete arguing yep um, which uh he picked in Sacramento for five bucks. Uh, wow. So sometimes, you know, you get a lucky break and, you know, you can find this stuff very, very cheaply. Arduin was published in 1992 as a two-volume set. Um, it was uh, a posthumous um, kind of rewrite or, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, had originally intended to take his rule set uh his original working title was arguing bloody arguing i think you have a shirt that says that don't you i do <laughs> yeah. um and uh anywho um so in 1992 mark shiner uh, uh you know rewrote uh the arguing rules um from Dave's notes, uh, and I think that was yeah that was published through Grimoire Games. It's a little bit different. Um, it was a conscious departure. D and D mechanics. Um, uh, to my mind, it it introduces some complexities that I would rather not learn. <laughs> but uh, by the same token, it doesn't doesn't look terribly different arguing campaign in a few years i definitely give uh the complete arguing a whirl um 
and only use the other volumes that I own for um, any setting info that isn't covered in the two volume uh, complete argument set. I don't really think it's you know, that rough, but I only just got after our campaign was a year and a half running. And I wasn't gonna switch the system up on, on, on my players. Um, so, and um, it, the complete arguing is, is really nice um, for the returning gamer because uh, it self-contains. Yeah. You other, um, no other book or supplement to mm. run it. Uh, you wouldn't need to do anything more than the usual referee adjudication to make it work in play. Uh, yeah, you could just—it's a complete yeah. kit. I, I so that that would be no, sorry. I, uh, I picked it up myself, and I mean it's D hundred, um, but it's very much a development of Dungeons and Dragons, isn't it? You know, you can see that. Um, you know, the, the kind of development of the game that Dave was working on, that it's kind of polished up, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and I, I think uh, I think Shiner had a very good handle on where David wanted to take his game. Um, and yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, really a, a faithful uh, take on it. So yeah, uh, that would be a good one. And, and it's not the collector's, aren't you know hot to get their hands on it because um you know it's it's not it's posthumous you know it's it's it was written after david's death in in 1988 uh so um you know the collectors are after the grimoires the grimoires get you know the prices can get hiked fairly high um and uh, so you can, the rub of that is you can find the complete RUN uh, for very reasonable prices, usually considerably less than what currently published games are running for. Um, there are groups on MeWe that uh, sell, buy, sell, and trade used games. Um, and uh, I've I've had excellent luck on on those you know on um, through those venues, always getting my stuff you know always getting it for the I was quoted etc. Um, okay. And uh, there's lots of people out there who love arguing and are gonna you know go out of out of their way to help you locate it. You know I've I've got a couple guys one one lives here not about maybe seven miles King me every time he sees something for sale you know he's like hey gabriel <laughs> you'll want to go over here and check this out um <laughs> you know and yeah you know you make friends with people you know the, the nice the other nice thing about arguing is there's a lot of i guess loyal fans out there uh, there are still uh plenty of David's original players still living uh, who would be glad to talk to anybody about this stuff. They usually frequent the arguing forums and blogs. And um, 
yeah, they're, they're ex- extremely, extremely helpful. Um, sometimes people even, you know, if they like you well enough, they'll even spot your stuff for free. You know, it's, it's, it's a fantastic group. Um, and, uh, it might make it easier to, um, if you're in the UK, to, um, uh, you know, get stuff shipped over to you. Well, Gabriel, it's coming up to a well over an hour, I think, now chatting. So I guess we've got to sort of think about wrapping things up. Um, it's been great. Thank you so much. Um, oh, yeah, thank you. Have you got any kind of last words? Take a troll to lunch. Imagine the hell out of your game and uh, have fun. Treat, you know, treat your players well or your, your referee. And, uh, yeah, just get out there and explore whatever it is you do. Thank you. It's brilliant talking to you. So, so grateful that you've you know, put up with the technical issues and, and come and have a chat. So thank you. Oh, no problem at all. The pleasure was all mine, Che. Here we are at the end of Series 2. I'm going to take a week or so out to enjoy the Easter holiday before launching back into a fresh new season. As I sit here today, I'm not entirely sure what's next. I have a short list of possible episodes, but there's a lot of room for development. What I do know is that we've built a strong following on here. Perhaps 120 regular listeners, and that seems to be growing. Roleplay Rescue has grown quickly in just five months from nothing. It's a show produced for the lapsed gamer who wants to find a route back into the hobby. And I know of at least two people who have done just that, started their own games directly from listening to this cast. That's an amazing success. The show got you guys back to the table and and that's worth it on its own. That's what we're here for. Along the way, there have been some strange turns. I've started doing an irregular GM's journal, which has garnered its own following and seems to be demanding a regular slot. We've attracted many active gamers who seem to find what I talk about interesting. Some episodes are more popular than the main episodes. And we've even sojourned into listening to me play with myself, which is not as dodgy as it sounds. What would make Roleplay Rescue Season 3 a big hit for you? I'm going to need a better plan and soon. Your comments on MeWe or Facebook, your emails and your anchor messages will be critical if I'm going to get that plan together. So come on, hit me up with a wish list. What topics would interest you? What questions need addressing? And is there anyone you want me to try and interview? I'm thinking it'd be great to invite some past interviewees back for some more discussion. And I'm also thinking about some broader topics, such as what's escapism and is it good or bad? And some thoughts around the actual philosophical issues that RPGs raise. You know, being a philosopher and all, that seems to be tempting to me. But I really don't know. I'm kind of spitballing here. So the long and short of it is that as I run out of plan for this season, I need to decide how to continue. So you know what you need to do, right? Roleplay Rescue is supported by a small but dedicated community of roleplayers, people just like you, who fund the podcast production through the Roleplay Rescue Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash RPG Rescue. Once again, I'd like to give a big shout out to all the supporters of the show whose patronage helps to keep the flame burning. It's truly motivating to have a dedicated bunch of listeners who've got my back. A big welcome to the mighty Jason Hobbs of Hobbs and Friends, and to the awesome Tim Shorts of Gothridge Manor, and to the master of multiple call-ins himself, 
Matt Jackson of Matt Random Podcast. Great to have you aboard, guys. Here, then, is the Order of Battle. The Mighty Swordbearer, Mark Grahan. The Brave Shieldbearers, Pete Fenner, Jason Hobbs, Ray Otis, Tim Shorts and Frank Turfler. The Intrepid Torchbearers, Darren Green, Matt Jackson, Edwin King, Christian Richards, Glenn Robertson, Peter Skeynes and Vance A. Thank you, all of you. Game on. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Roleplay Rescue. It's the final episode of Season 2, and I'm going to take a week or so out to reflect and enjoy these to break. If you want to get in touch, ask questions, or share your point of view, you can leave me a voice message. Just download the Anchor mobile app, search for Roleplay Rescue, and tap on the Messages button to leave yours. I listen to all the messages folk leave, and would dearly love to add more of your voices to the show. I'm Che Webster. This has been Roleplay Rescue Series 2. Thanks for listening. And game on.